It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how social media has created a Tower of Babel-like fragmentation of society. Plus, the infrastructure secrets behind a new-to-the-U.S. reality show starring some very busy toddlers. And the brewing beef between Spirit Halloween and the King of Halloween. Here is some cool stuff for your ride home. I recently did a reread of John Ronson's 2015 book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which follows individuals who experienced some kind of usually career-ending shaming in the public sphere, exasperated by social media. The actions they were shamed for ran the gamut from insensitive or racist jokes to plagiarization, and the book digs into how the nature of public shaming has changed with social media, with comparisons to the kind of pre 20th century public punishments we associate with, like, the Scarlet Letter, and to the justice system as it stands today, and how social media is kind of its own unique beast compared to those two, but that it also kind of tries to be all of those things. As Ronson puts it, quote, It felt as if the people on Twitter had been invited to be characters in a courtroom drama and had been allowed to choose their roles, and all had gone for the part of the hanging judge. Or it was even worse than that. They all had gone for the part of the people in the lithographs being ribald at whippings, end quote. It was interesting to read given how the internet has continued to evolve over the seven years since the book was published. The words cancel culture do not appear anywhere in the text, for example, but so much of it still rings true. And it just so happens that social psychologist Jonathan Haidt wrote a long piece in The Atlantic right after I finished my reread that dovetails quite nicely, if ominously. Haidt argues that social media has been largely responsible for the fragmentation of America, and I would argue of many other nations as well, framing social media and that fragmentation as the Tower of Babel. A quick refresher on the Tower of Babel. In the book of Genesis, people built a super tall building because that seems to be what some humans really like to do, but God thought that humans were getting too full of themselves and that with so many of them speaking the same language in one building, they might become too powerful. So he made everyone in the tower speak a different language. And this is sometimes used as an origin myth for kids for like why there are different languages spoken all around the world. And in some retellings, God actually destroys the tower in addition to making everyone unable to understand each other. And this, as hate sees it, is exactly what happened to America, metaphorically, sometime in the past decade. He says, quote, We're disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We're cut off from one another and from the past. It's been clear for quite a while now that Red America and Blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory, with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between Red and Blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within in universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families, end quote. Okay, yes, agreed, but how does social media come into play? 
The internet and early social media seemed like miracles that would transform the world for good, giving everyone with access to the internet unprecedented abilities to connect with each other, find new communities and resources. We all know this. We reminisce about this. And citing the Arab Spring and Occupy and Google Translate becoming available on smartphones all in 2011, Hate calls this the high point of techno-democratic optimism and says you could argue that 2011 was the year humanity rebuilt the Tower of Babel. But the story of the Tower of Babel is not about humanity's great achievement in building the tower. It's about the curse of no longer speaking the same language. It's about the fall. And Haight gives the fall three key elements. Quote, Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. Social capital, extensive social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions, and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three, end quote. The turning point in terms of those social ties came once social media had changed from a place where you expressed yourself and kept in touch with friends, think customizing your MySpace page and writing on your friend's Facebook wall, into a performative space in which everyone thought about their brand and how their content played on the algorithm. And this performative behavior was no longer deepening friendships, no longer deepening and strengthening those social ties. And that algorithm part is key, too. Once like and share or retweet buttons were introduced and the platforms had data on user engagement, Hate says, they were able to adjust how content was displayed based on that engagement, not just on chronology. Quoting again, If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your posts rode to fame or ignominy based based on the clicks of thousands of strangers, and you, in turn, contributed thousands of clicks to the game. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment, and the prediction of how others would react to each new action. The newly tweaked platforms were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves. The volume of outrage was shy Shocking. End quote. Now, in terms of how social media has weakened institutions, this is something President James Madison was concerned about back in the day and outlined in the Federalist Papers, not with social media, of course, but general human nature. He noted humans' tendency towards forming factions, even for frivolous occasions or passions. You know, all of our Twitter wars over perceived slights have helped strengthen the walls of our factions, engaging them when punitively necessary and preventing us from effectively seeing beyond those walls, even to institutions we once trusted, but now view as outsiders. Quoting again, Blind and irrevocable trust in any particular individual or organization is never warranted. But when citizens lose trust in elected leaders, health authorities, the courts, universities, and the integrity of elections, then every decision becomes contested. Every election becomes a life and death struggle to save the country from the other side. End quote. And Hate cites recent studies that have shown social media encourages political polarization, fuels populism, and is associated with the spread of misinformation. 
And then we get to those shared stories. With the dissipating trust in institutions comes a mistrust in the stories being told by those institutions. And not just what is true and not in the moment, although that's concerning enough in itself, as we've seen over the past couple of years in particular, but also a mistrust of the stories of the past and how they're told to future generations. You know, with all these book bans and parents trying to mandate what parts of history and society schools are allowed to teach, kids are going to grow up with a fragmented idea of who we are as a nation, as a people, and may not feel any shared sense of identity with people who went to a school that taught history differently or with people from other generations. So there's the three key elements that bind together successful democracies, social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories, and how social media has helped fracture each one. Now, Haight goes on to address how much of the fragmentation does predate social media, but how social media gives more power to aggressors and extremists and less to moderate, non-combative voices who are less willing to employ the same tactics or stick around for nastiness. Studies have shown that social media doesn't make anyone more hostile, it just gives more power to those few, loud, hostile voices. And Haight also touches on part of what's going to make it worse is the ease with which misleading and provocative content can be churned out with AI programs like GPT-3. He also proposes some solutions for strengthening democratic institutions, which include some voting reforms to attempt to counter the partisan pressures of social media and put the focus back on legislators' actual average constituents, as well as reforming social media to prevent misleading and provocative stuff from gaining such reach, not censoring its existence, just leveling the playing field for more benign content as well. And he says we need to figure out how to better equip kids to grow up in this world on social media. The whole essay is incredibly worth the read. I'm not saying I endorse every word of it, but it's excellent food for thought. And I'll leave you with this one last point. Quote, When we look away from our dysfunctional federal government, disconnect from social media, and talk with our neighbors directly things seem more hopeful. Most Americans in the More in Common report are members of the exhausted majority, which is tired of the fighting and is willing to listen to the other side and compromise. Most Americans now see that social media is having a negative impact on the country and becoming aware of its damaging effects on children. When Tocqueville toured the United States in the 1830s, he was impressed by the American habit of forming voluntary associations to fix local problems, rather than waiting for kings or nobles to act, as Europeans would do. That habit is still with us today. We cannot expect Congress and the tech companies to save us. We must change ourselves and our communities. End quote. Well, after that kind of heavy segment, let me cleanse the air with a lighthearted, uplifting, and adorable TV show recommendation. It's a new international show on U.S. Netflix that's been a hit in Japan for 30 years, but could probably never work here. It's called Old Enough, and it's a reality show that sends toddlers out on their own to run errands. I mean, technically, there's a camera crew there, obviously, but according to The Guardian, they, along with a safety team that watches out for any mishaps, try to stay hidden so the kids truly believe that they're alone. 
And these are really toddlers, two to four-year-olds, being sent by their parents to walk to the grocery store and pick up particular items, or similar basic errands. Basic to adults, anyways. The kids sometimes get distracted or overwhelmed. While the episodes have been carved up into under 10-minute segments on U.S. Netflix in Japan, the episodes are three hours long and presented as twice-a-year events that draw in a fifth of the nation's viewers when they air. It's been a staple in the country for so long that some of the parents in recent episodes were on the show as toddlers themselves. And part of why the show works is because of the sheer amount of preparation that goes into it. Quoting The Guardian, All the errand routes are inspected by parents and production staff to check for dangerous roads or suspicious persons. The children are chosen after a laborious selection process, and all local neighbors are informed of the task so as not to freak out and call the police when they see a four-year-old wandering aimlessly through the streets. End quote. Plus, at this point in the show's longevity, the locals where episodes are shot are typically excited to do their part if filming happens in their community. But the other reason that the show is possible is infrastructure. Getting around town on foot is much more common and at a much younger age for Japanese children versus their American counterparts. Slate notes that Japanese kids between 7 and 12 years old walk for almost 4 in 5 trips that they make on weekdays, and Japanese kids 10 to 11 years old make only 15% of their weekday trips with a parent in tow, compared to 65% for American kids. Part of this is cultural norms and values. Japanese adults believe that kids should be able to be independent in their day-to-day travel and that adults in the community should be trusted to watch out for all kids, not just their own, says E. Owen Waygood, a Montreal Polytechnic professor, to Slate. But those cultural values have led to infrastructure policies that enable such behavior to happen. Quoting from Slate, Among the factors, said Hironori Kato, a professor of transportation planning at the University of Tokyo, drivers in Japan are taught to yield to pedestrians. Speed limits are low. Neighborhoods have small blocks with lots of intersections. That means kids have to cross the street a lot, but also keeps drivers going slow, out of self-interest if nothing else. The streets themselves are also different. Many small streets do not have raised sidewalks, but depend on pedestrians, cyclists, and drivers to share the road. Curbside parking is rare, which creates better visibility for drivers and pedestrians, and helps give the smaller streets of big Japanese cities their distinctive feel. Car buyers must show proof of an off-street parking space to make their purchase. End quote. And Waygood adds, quote, Japanese cities are built on the concept that every neighborhood should function as a village. That planning paradigm means you have shops and small businesses in residential neighborhoods, which means there are places to go, places these kids can walk to. End quote. So even though Old Enough has a ton of extra safety precautions built in, and no, most Japanese parents are not typically sending their toddler off to run errands, most Japanese towns are actually safe enough for kids far younger than their American counterparts to run errands, walk to school, or navigate to a friend's house on their own. And if they do encounter any kind of issue along the way, a random adult nearby will probably help them out. And Henry Graybar at Slate makes a really important point. These kinds of policies are good for empowering the kids and for encouraging a nice community feel and good for the environment by cutting down on car use, but they also give parents, especially moms, a break, freeing them from the constant shuttling around of kids to school, playdates, and practices. I like how Graybar concludes, quote, 
A city that frees children also frees parents. That's a cultural difference, but it's one that is deeply associated with a different approach to designing cities and neighborhoods, one that we could easily copy if we wanted to. End quote. Okay, so I thought that I mentioned this when it was first announced last year, but I can't find any record of actually having done so, and now that it is completed filming, it is garnering a whole new round of press. Halloween pop-up superstore Spirit Halloween has officially made a movie, and it is coming out this fall. The movie, creatively titled Spirit Halloween, stars Christopher Lloyd, aka Doc Brown, and Rachel Lee Cook alongside a crew of preteens who invested the supernatural going-ons at a spirit Halloween in a deserted strip mall. Now, while the studio has said the film has a bit of a Goonies vibe, I think Collider's description of it as being like the 2015 Goosebumps movie meets Night at the Museum might end up being more accurate. My major gripe with the upcoming film is that it does not seem to involve King of Halloween comedy musician Nick Lutzko, who went viral in 2020 with an excellent song about Spirit Halloween, and then ended up getting a deal with them to produce a second song and music video featuring all of their wacko horror animatronics. Lutzko has been tweeting about this snub in his trademark joking but not really grift hustler kind of way. So far, Spirit Halloween has responded by asking if he wants to write the song for the movie's trailer, and Lutzko countered with asking for $100,000 to do so. He also posted an edited track of his original Spirit Halloween song, but with every mention of Spirit Halloween being replaced with Home Depot. We'll see how this develops. I am honestly pretty shocked he didn't at least get some kind of cameo. I mean, he is a big reason Spirit Halloween got a bit of an internet vibe shift over the last couple of years and generated the kind of buzz that probably led to this movie getting greenlit to begin with. But I will get off my niche Halloween soapbox for now, I suppose. That is going to be it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.